please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm going to start out by saying that I'm personally not a fan of when podcasts do a two-part episode. I prefer them in one big chunk. The longer, the better. But that's my own personal preference. And it just so happens that this episode is about twice as long as a normal episode of Dorky. So yeah, after just a few episodes, I've become the very thing I've swore to destroy, and I'm making this a two-parter. My apologies, and I promise not to do this very often. I really think this story is worth the extra time it's going to take to tell, though. I'm a huge true crime fan, and have been for most of my life. I've read countless books, watched countless documentaries, and, of course, listened to countless true crime podcasts. And the case that started this lifelong love of mine, and just mysteries in general? Jack the Ripper. I remember being a kid, hearing about this case, and being absolutely fascinated. They never caught the guy who did that? Who was it? How could someone have killed all those people and never been caught? I needed an answer. Unfortunately, after all those years since those horrific crimes happened, we still don't have an answer. And as much as it breaks my heart to say it, I don't think we ever will. As much as I've thought about it, as many rabbit holes I've dove down trying to find the answer... I don't even have a pet theory as to who Jack the Ripper was. I've read some theories that seem to make more sense to me than others, but it all just ends in a big shrug to me. I had some hope when they did some DNA analysis of a stamp that had been on a letter that Jack the Ripper was thought to have sent to the police. I thought for sure they'd find the answer. But nope. They did figure out who the DNA on the back of that stamp belonged to, but they couldn't be sure if that guy was actually Jack the Ripper or just some guy battling mental illness back in 1888 claiming to be Jack the Ripper. That's fair. I mean, if this guy was mentally ill and wrote a letter to his local police department falsely claiming to be a serial killer, even if he's been dead for over 150 years, that doesn't mean it's okay to pin him for murders he didn't actually do. Even today, people will spontaneously confess to murders that they didn't commit. It's actually not even that rare a thing. So who's to say that's not what happened with that letter? Then, a couple of years ago, it was announced that they were going to do DNA testing on a shawl that had been found in possession of one of the victims. Aha, I thought. This is it. Science will prevail and finally uncover who this guy was, and the mystery will be solved. But that's not what happened. They did the DNA tests and even got results that pointed to a specific individual. 
To my surprise, these results were met with everyone saying they didn't solve anything. Instead, the results were met with questions like, was it really him? Did the shawl even really belong to the victim? Or did she get it from a friend? Or possibly a shelter, which would mean that the DNA being on the shawl is meaningless. It was at that moment that I finally accepted the fact that we'll never find out who Jack the Ripper was. There's just too much invested in the fact that it's a mystery. It's too fun to wonder who did it, and if they actually finally solve it, it would spoil the fun. I feel like Jack the Ripper is kind of like England's version of the Lizzie Borden case, or the Black Dahlia. Those stories would kind of lose their luster if they had an official conclusion to them. It's more fun to discuss the different theories, which is why even the DNA evidence of who Jack the Ripper could be, people will list like five reasons why it might not have been this person. To be honest, I'd be lying if I didn't say that in my deepest heart of hearts, there's still not some part of me that hopes that one day a definitive, undeniable answer will be found. But I'm logical and realistic enough to have accepted that that's just probably never going to happen. All of that is just my long-winded way of saying that these episodes are not going to end with me announcing who the real Jack the Ripper was, or even which theory of who Jack the Ripper was I think is the most likely. Instead, I'm going to be talking about his victims. While it's technically unknown just exactly how many victims Jack the Ripper truly had, there are women who were killed at the time that investigators think could have been victims of Jack the Ripper, but they're just different enough that they aren't sure, so they're not counted among the canonical five. The five women who they're sure were killed by Jack the Ripper. So I'm going to be talking about these canonical five. The ones who are listed as the five victims in all the books, documentaries, and podcasts about Jack the Ripper I've read, watched, listened to over the years. In most of these, they'd mostly focus on Jack the Ripper and the mystery of who he was. They'd mention the names of the five victims, maybe their birth dates, always mention the fact that they were prostitutes. That word is in air quotes, and I'm only using it here because that was the word used in most of the sources I'd see back then. It would be implied that these women somehow deserved what happened to them for being so immoral, and then end with some theories of who Jack the Ripper was. That's obviously an oversimplification, but that's seriously the gist of what pretty much all coverage of the Jack the Ripper case was like. I never even thought about it like this, or expected anything different, because that's just the way it was. So imagine my surprise and delight when I heard about a book called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. You guys, it is amazing, and I 1000% recommend it. A lot of the information I'm going to be telling you I got from this book, but get this book anyway. I can tell you before like 90% of the script for this episode is even written that my recap of the main facts told in this book or substitute for the actual thing. Get this book. If you're at all interested in the Jack the Ripper case, or even the time period it takes place in, because she does a great job of describing what life in the Whitechapel area of Victorian England was really like. Okay, now let's get into the actual episode. I'm going to talk about the five main canonical victims of the famous Jack the Ripper killings. Just to set the scene, these murders happened in the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. This would be when Queen Victoria was ruling, 
the Industrial Revolution was going on, and this not only led to huge changes in society, but to a huge gap in wealth of people. Whitechapel was a very, very poor part of the East End of London. Poverty, disease, and crime were, unfortunately, common. Things were bleak in Whitechapel in 1888. Then the first of Jack the Ripper's victim's body was found. Her name was Marianne Walker, but she was known as Polly Walker. She was born August 26, 1845. Polly's father was a blacksmith who specialized in making typeface, those block letters that newspapers used to be printed from. Blacksmith was an honorable, respected profession, but it wasn't a profession that paid very well. But even though just barely scraping by, Polly's parents managed to get her educated. Polly went to school until she was 15 and learned to read and write. Her mother died when she was six years old, and her younger brother died about a year and a half later. Her father never remarried. Polly helped her father as much as she could and took up a lot of the housework and cooking. She lived with her father until she got married to William Nichols, who had a job in the printing industry like Polly's dad. They quickly had two children, one right after the other. The oldest passed away, but another two children were born. This growing family needed a larger place to live, and they were eventually granted a spot in the Peabody Buildings, a brand new development built for working-class families just like the Nichols. Polly had two more children. Eventually, Polly started drinking, and her husband started having an affair with the neighbor Rosetta. Polly and Edward fought, and she eventually left her husband and family for good. Edward and Rosetta ended up moving out of the Peabody building and raising Polly and Edward's kids together, even having a child of their own. Edward was forced by law to pay Polly a sort of alimony, but it wasn't much. It barely covered the price for a room in the worst part of town, and the only jobs available to Polly barely paid enough for her to feed herself. Then Edward stopped paying his alimony. I'm not passing judgment. He went through the courts and had the payments stopped legally. I'm only bringing this up because this loss of income, as small as it was, would have been devastating to Polly. She soon ended up at the workhouse. Workhouses are most likely going to be an episode of their own one day, but workhouses were, to put it simply, like halfway houses for the poor, where the people who stayed there had to work very, very hard for very, very little money. Conditions at a workhouse were terrible, as was the stigma of having stayed at one. She did move back in with her father and brother, but that didn't last long, as her brother died suddenly in a freak accident. After several years bouncing between workhouses, unsteady jobs, homelessness, and even jail, Polly became pretty much permanently homeless. Her drinking continued, in fact, got worse over these years. She was last known to be staying at a temporary lodging home in Whitechapel, on and off. She was drinking in a pub on August 31st until about 2.30 a.m. She tried to get a bed at a lodging house, but had no money, so was turned away. She was seen by a friend a few hours later who said she seemed very intoxicated. Just about an hour after being seen by this friend, her body was discovered on the street. Her ex-husband, William, had to identify her body. It was the police and the press who jumped to conclusions, assuming that because she was a single woman of next to no means, out in the middle of the night by herself, that the only explanation would be that she was involved in sex work. And once that assumption was made of Polly, 
it became big air quotes here, fact, even though all the people interviewed who knew her denied it. How did she earn her money then? Well, from what I could gather, she earned what little money she had by begging or by selling what items she could find was given, or yes, steal. But she would often spend what money she did manage to come up with on alcohol, which meant that she didn't have money to spend on a room most nights, so she would sleep outside on the street. This is where she was found. One question that's always come up with the Jack the Ripper case is why no one ever heard any of the victims scream. Hallie Rubenholtz suggests in her book that the reason no one heard the victims scream was because they were asleep outside when attacked, so they never saw him and never had a chance to scream. To my mind, this makes perfect sense. As you'll hear, all the victims were very poor single women who didn't have a permanent home and who were known out of necessity to sleep outside at times. People without homes are, unfortunately, often targets of crime, and the Canonical Five all would have fit that description. A week after Polly was found, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered near the steps to the doorway of a backyard. Annie's father, George, was a member of the Queen's Guard. He even served at Queen Victoria's coronation and at her marriage to Albert. Her mother, Ruth, was a servant. Annie was born illegitimate, which was quite the stigma for the mother as well as the child back then. Ruth was fired from her job and forced to make a living by whatever George would give her and small jobs she could do while living out of a rented room she stayed in by George's barracks. Ruth had another child with George before they married. Annie was two. While this did improve Ruth and her children's situation, their situation didn't improve that much, as the army provided Ruth and her children half rations, and they all had to live in the barracks. They were eventually allowed a small allowance for housing, which is good, because they eventually ended up having six children. Army pay wasn't great, but one thing it did provide was inexpensive education for the children, which was huge. Annie would have learned to read and write, sing, history, geography, and math. She also would have learned to sew. The family did have to move around a lot, but it seems to have been mostly local. So Annie grew up middle class, the daughter of a soldier in a very socially prestigious regiment. For her to see a member of the royal family, or even Queen Victoria herself, wouldn't have been unusual. In 1854, a terrible wave of scarlet fever killed four of Annie's siblings in only three weeks. By the time she was 15, her parents had had two more children, and Annie had left the family home to begin working as a housemaid. This was a poorly paid, but respectable job. Then, her father unexpectedly died, leaving her mother to have to find a new place to live with all those kids. Ruth was lucky enough to be able to find a place big enough to house her family and even rent out rooms. She rented one of those rooms to John Chapman, a coachman for a prominent family. It wasn't long before John and Annie started dating and married. In 1870, Annie and John had their first child. They would end up having eight children, although only three lived. In 1879, John got a job as head coachman at a country estate in Berkshire. Life was actually good for the Chapman family, except for the fact that Annie was an alcoholic. It's not known when Annie's struggle with alcohol began, but her sister Miriam is quoted as saying that her problem began when she was quite young. Around the time her oldest surviving child got sick and died, Annie had begun to be known by the local police for public drunkenness. She even went for a year-long treatment for her drinking at a sanitarium, 
which at that time would have been something like an old-timey rehab. She returned home to John and the kids when that time was up, but then she relapsed. She never tried to get sober again. The Chapmans lived in a house on the property of the family that John worked for, and Annie's behavior had gotten so out of control that they gave him an ultimatum. Annie needed to leave their home, or he would face dismissal. Annie left and went to live with her sisters, which didn't last long. She was soon living with a man named Jack. Annie and Jack ended up in Whitechapel so he could find work. Her ex-husband John was sending her alimony each week, which Annie and Jack were living off of, but mostly drinking away. Then John died, so the payments stopped. Jack soon left her. By 1887, along with severe alcoholism, she began to suffer from what appears to have been tuberculosis. She still tried to earn a living by doing crochet work and selling matches and flowers. She would sometimes have her friend write to her family asking for money. The night she died, she was having trouble coming up with money to pay for a bed for the evening. She'd actually already been given the money by a friend, but had drank it away. She asked the keeper to keep my bed for me. I shan't be long. Ill and drunk, she went down the stairs and stood at the door for a few minutes, then left. It's important I mention again here how sick she was at this point. She'd been in and out of the infirmary and had been taking medicine prescribed to her for her tuberculosis. She was also very drunk. The place she was found was a well-known area where people who didn't have a home and needed to sleep outside slept. In my mind, the odds of this sick, drunk woman going to a familiar spot that was considered safe to sleep for the night outweigh the odds of her being out in her condition for sex work. I mean, possible? Sure. Likely? Not very. But the police and papers, right in the middle of investigating Polly's murder from just the week before, were more than happy to also label Annie without much consideration. They just assumed Annie was a sex worker, the same way they assumed Polly was one. I'm going to stop the story right here for now. I know, it's already a lot. I'll pick up where I left off next week and finish this story. My main source for this episode was the book The Five, The Untold Lives of the Woman Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. I can't say it enough times. This book is amazing. Read it. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. Friends.